Suppose we should start, huh? Well, I want to welcome everyone to Gospel of Grace. We'll just take our seats, and as people come, we'll, we'll just uh, add them as they come. I want to do a little bit of review from where we were last time, but I want to first of all begin with prayer. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together and to look at your word, to look at the book of Joel and see how you will finish all the things that you've commanded and promised that you're coming again to bring a glorious kingdom to save your people and to judge your enemies. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to think well upon your text. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you know, I want to just mention, broadly speaking, the book of Joel is really about this final battle that we're going to see at the end of time. And I want you to think about just as what we've seen lately in our own culture, we've seen this movement to rebuild Babylon And what I mean by that is how many in here have ever heard of this term that you've seen lately? It's a phrase called build back better. And it's not a political term, apparently, it's because it's used even at the UN, it's used all over the world. And part of this, this desire to build back better is this global reset. And so there really is a desire to build Babylon, to build a one world order. We're seeing that come to fruition. I don't know if it's going to occur. I'm not a prophet. But it's certainly there is that desire there. Well, remember, the culminating battle that destroys Babylon happens in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, what's the 70th week? Remember, that's the last seven years. So in that last seven-year period, what Jesus Christ is going to do is he is going to, through successive judgments, destroy the building of Babylon that will have been built. The last battle that occurs in the 70th week of Daniel is where all of the nations gather around Jerusalem. They try to destroy God's people once and for all to make God a liar. And that's where Jesus Christ comes bodily. He destroys the enemies. He sets up his kingdom that will be for a thousand years. Well, isn't an interesting Joel in the ninth century is depicting that final battle. That's what the book of Joel is about. And I think it's very fitting that Joel is the one who first wrote this. After all, his name means Yahweh is God. Now, what's the great sin of Babylon? The great sin of Babylon is that we are God. And isn't that the first sin that we saw in the garden where the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, that you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil? Joel is a constant reminder through his writings and even his name, no, Yahweh's God. There's one God, And he's going to throw down Babylon. And so that's what we see here in this final battle. Now, I want to show you some irony how God is going to arouse the nations. A little review, because I know it's been a month since we've been there. But remember in Joel 3.9, we're in the final verses here. Joel records God saying this. It's an invitation to the nations. He says, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Now, the reason there is some irony here is because God is arousing the nations to battle in a battle that they have no chance of winning. In a sense, he's mocking them. All right, now, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Jeremiah 4, 6. I want you to see that Jeremiah, which was written really about 200 and some years later, 280, he was saying the same thing with the same enemy, the enemies of the north. However, in Joel 3, Joel 3 is about the final enemies that come at the end of time. But I want you to see, often God would invite the nations up. Jeremiah 4, 6. Notice Jeremiah 4, 6. Hope you've turned there. Notice it says, Lift up a standard towards Zion. Seek refuge. Do not stand still, for I am bringing evil from the north and great destruction. Now, what's interesting about that is that's exactly what Joel had prophesied in Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, the very same northern enemy was prophesied as coming. But now when you get to Joel chapter 3, it's not about that northern enemy. It's about the final enemy that happens still in our future as the nations surround Jerusalem. Let me show you a way that we can determine that. I want to remind you, back in Joel 2.7, this is about prophecy regarding the enemy from the north. Notice what it says regarding that enemy. It says, They run like, a mighty, like mighty men, they climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. And if you keep reading, 
they're going to be successful. The army that comes from the north. So here's my whole point. Listen carefully. I'll point, I'm going to point this out on the screen so everyone sees this. In Joel chapter 2, the northern army, successful. They're going to be successful. Joel chapter 3, that army that comes after Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. They will not be successful. Why are scholars then saying it's the same battle? Why are they doing that today? You have scholars who say the enemies that come in Joel 2 are the same enemies in Joel chapter 3. Well, that would be interesting to me because in Joel 2, they're successful. In Joel 3, God mocks them. In Joel chapter 2, God says, who can resist them? In Joel chapter 3, he says, why don't you come up? You're going to be destroyed. How can they be the same enemy? So if you're looking for evidence that Joel chapter 3 is indeed about that final battle, this is a big one. As Bob always says, we have to be very careful readers and good readers of Scripture. And here, Joel himself is showing us data in the text where you and I can differentiate between the northern army that, yes, is successful in the prophet's day, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, because remember, Joel 2 was talking about the same thing they were. But in Joel chapter 3, it's about the final battle in which Jesus Christ destroys those enemies. Okay, so that, I think, is a good way of proving that very fact. Now, any comments or questions, feel free. Oh, we got one from Brian here. <clears throat> it's interesting where they're successful in Chapter 2, and they're not going to be successful in Chapter 3. And, like, in the art of war, it's almost like an enticement. Yes. Okay? From, from the Lord to... to to kind of uh, uh, get them uh, uh, get them riled up like they're going to be successful, right. and, and it's only for God to crush them. Amen. Well said. Um, you know, as you were saying that, Brian, do you guys remember in 1 Kings, uh, Bob was talking about this not long ago, where you have that scene in the throne room of God, and God uses those deceiving spirits to bring Ahab to battle? Well, it's much like that. You know, God uses the angelic realm for his purposes, and he puts in this lie within their minds that, oh, yeah, you'll be successful when he's absolutely going to trounce them. And the same thing was given to Ahab so that he would be trounced and perish in battle as well. So, yeah, well said. Now, let me keep moving for time. Again, we talked about this last time, but I want to review it again. Joel 3.10, very interesting passage. Listen to what God commands. Now, this is to the people that are coming. He says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Now here, there's some mockery going on where indeed the enemies are called to beat their swords into plowshares, or excuse me, the the other way around, their plowshares into swords and the pruning hooks into spears. He's calling them to battle. Now what's very interesting is many of you will probably remember that the opposite has been stated in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, remember the promise of the millennial kingdom when Christ reigns on the earth? This is the promise. Now, when was Isaiah written? Well, about 170 years after Joel was written. 150, 170, right in there. Listen to what Isaiah said. It says, And he will judge between the nations... And will render decisions for many peoples, notice in blue, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now, one of the great debates that's going on today is a lot of people don't believe that Joel was written prior to Isaiah. So just put yourself in their mindset. If you thought that Isaiah and the book of Joel were written about the same time, Can you imagine the quandary you would be in? Which of the statements came first? Was Joel's original? Notice that you beat your plowshares into the sword. Or is Isaiah original that you beat your swords into a plowshare and your spears into pruning hooks? Well, I'll tell you what. I believe that Joel was written, again, about 150 years earlier, and I think Joel was original. Now, let me explain the significance of that. I believe that around the time of Joel in the 9th century, you had a primarily an agrarian society. And that's why it was so devastating that the locusts came. The locusts came and what, did what? It destroyed the crops of Israel. Well, why would that matter unless you had crops planted? 
So they were an agrarian society. So how did they provide for their national defense? The farmers had to fight. And so I think, notice in red, I think this statement was an idiomatic statement of their day. In other words, did you ever hear us in English or in America, we'll say it's raining cats and dogs? And do you ever think if you, if you had some guy from Zimbabwe who just learned English and he's living in America and all of a sudden someone tells him that it's raining cats and dogs, he would have no idea what we're talking about. Cats and dogs, what's wrong with these people? But it's an idiomatic expression, isn't it, that it's going to rain very hard. In the same way, this is an idiomatic expression, almost a uh, proverbial expression of the people of Israel because they had to say it so often. So often they would hear about enemies that were coming and who would fight. It was the farmer. And so the farmer had to really beat their plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears. They really had to get ready for battle. Um, I mentioned the last time I talked about this, do you remember in World War II there used to be those signs about buying war bonds? I had one for my uncle when I was a kid. And again, I was born in 1973, and so this dates to the 1940s. But he got me one. It was a fighter pilot in an airplane. It said, you buy them, we'll fly them. Well, that was a proverbial expression. If you grew up in the 1940s, you just knew that saying, that slogan. Another one was, Uncle Sam wants you. That was another recruitment poster. Many of you have seen those. Well, this was their recruitment poster. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Joel was original. That's what I'm claiming. Now, why is that so important? Because do you see how when you finally get to Isaiah, and Isaiah some 170 years later now is talking about the work of the Messiah and what he's going to accomplish, it's shocking. It's shocking. Now the proverbial saying is tipped on its head. You're going to be able to beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. Why? Because there's not going to be war anymore. The very war that threatened the people of Israel year after year after year, they had this proverbial saying in their mouth and their mind. And all of a sudden it's going to be reversed. Why? Because in Isaiah 2, the promise is the Messiah is going to reign. And we know from the rest of the Bible that the Messiah reigns for a thousand years on the earth. And there really never will be war. How many in here have ever seen the peace symbol that, uh, that looks like an upside-down cross that's broken? Everyone has seen the symbol? Isn't it interesting the world wants peace, but they don't want the Messiah who's going to bring peace? So do you realize then part of a Christian worldview is to realize that government's role prior to the Messiah coming is to provide a defense for its people. As the culture becomes more Marxist, that goal is changing where the role of government isn't to restrain evil, but rather to redistribute wealth. And the reason why is to redistribute wealth is to bring a kingdom where everyone has according to their needs, each according to their ability, as Karl Marx had bragged what happened and was it uh, the Communist Manifesto or Das Kapital? It was one of those. So anyway, that's what they're going to do. And so we see that only when Messiah comes is there really going to be peace. And so always remember this, that Joel 3.10 and Isaiah 2.4, keep those in your minds to say, wow, what a promise when the Lord Jesus returns. By the way, um, could somebody look up Micah 4, verse 3? Micah 4.3, could someone read that for me? Because you're also going to see another parallel. Remember, Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. And so that'll show you again how the promise of Messiah changed the wording of this prophecy initially given by Joel. I don't know if anyone's got a, a Bible open and a microphone by him. Oh, thanks, Eric. <laughs> Micah 4.3. Okay, Micah 4.3. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Oh, wait a minute. That was verse three. Yeah, three. Is that what you want? Perfect. Okay. Yeah, so notice here Micah was saying the same thing that Isaiah was. And he's basically a contemporary. Same, same century, 8th century. So, yeah. Very good. Um, yeah, Eric. I just wanted to mention, uh, I have a client that lives in England. Yeah. And so every year I talk to him a little bit, 
at tax time, and he's, okay, he believes that everything is great, that they have multiculturalism, and so there's no problem with bringing in a lot of Muslims and all that. And he sent me a book. He mailed me a book, and it's written, I'm trying to think of the author's name, but in that book, and this is a Christian missionary, supposedly, who is a big authority worldwide. The UN listens to him. Uh, I mean, this guy's a big deal, and I'm kicking myself that I can't think of his name. But I read a little bit of that book, and I had to put it down. I couldn't stand it, because one of the things that he said right away is he said, you know, we have too many people who are not ready to to uh, to beat their swords into plowshares. Oh wow! See, in other words, it's like kingdom now. It's all of that, and this we is UN. This is this is a big deal. This is yeah. what most of these people are thinking. Yeah, well said, Eric. Yeah. So their view is that we're the ones who do it. That's right, and so that's what contributes to Babylon. Babylon is built believing in human effort. Jerusalem will be rebuilt and brought to fruition by the grace of God. So the world through works brings Babylon. Jesus through his grace and power brings Jerusalem. And by the way, in Isaiah, I'll bring in this sometime, there's a huge chiastic structure that shows you the parallel, or I should say the contrast between Babylon. It's called the city of chaos. It's Isaiah 24.10, if I recall. What's very interesting is that term for chaos is tohu. Now, I don't know if anyone remembers that from in Hebrew, but that's in Genesis 1.1. Remember when God first created, everything was tohu and bohu. It was formless and void. That same term is used of Babylon that mankind builds. So the attitude that your friend exhibited is, we're going to do this. We're going to beat the swords into... We're going to bring world peace. Think about John Lennon's song. Imagine. It's the Marxist manifesto in song form. If you read John Lennon's song lyrics, read it tonight before you go to bed. Imagine there's no heaven or hell. Imagine there's no religion. Imagine there's no boundaries. There's no, nothing to die for. There's no need for war. He's going to imagine that you're going to have the swords beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. But when they actually build it, it's going to lead to the worst warfare that the world has ever seen. So bad will the warfare be that you're going to lose a quarter of the earth's population in the opening seal judgments in the book of Revelation. How bad is that? If you lose 25% of the earth's population, that is eight times worse than the battles that we saw in World War II where we lost 3% of the earth's population. The war that's coming at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel is eight times worse than World War II. And that's just the beginning. As Jesus described it, that's just the beginning of birth pangs. So, yeah, it's, it's astonishing. I'm sorry, uh, could you, could you briefly explain why you believe that Isaiah was written after Joel versus other theologians who believe that it was uh, around the same time? Yeah, you know, in my, in my introduction, it gets very um, somewhat complex, but the, I gave an introductory message all about the dating and the, the timing of the book of Joel, and I, I dated that to the ninth century. One of the reasons why is it, it fits in very nicely to the period of around 840-841 B.C. And I don't know if everyone remembers what happened there. There was a woman named Athaliah, and she had set herself on the throne and increased Baal worship in Judah. I believe that that's the setting for what's going on, and I give a lot of evidence for why I believe that. But I think the clear indications from Scripture and from outside sources is that Joel was probably 9th century. One of the reasons why it's important for our theology and our interpreting the Bible is if Joel is dated after, let's say, 586 B.C., Joel is not predicting the northern armies. He's merely talking about what had occurred. Now, why would there be professors and scholars who say Joel wrote after the events that he wrote about? Because they don't believe in predictive prophecy. They don't believe that God knows the future. And so they attack it. They say, well, that can't be. He had to write after it. But once you realize that, no, these prophets were writing about things in advance, you can say, yes, you know what? He did write about these battles that were yet to come. One of the proofs that I think we have is Joel chapter 3 itself. That was a battle that's never occurred. And yet that's the same battle that Zechariah 14 writes about, as we will see. 
It's the same battle that Jesus Christ talks about in Matthew 24. It's the same battle that John wrote about in Revelation 19. So, yes, Joel was on to something, wasn't he? He was predicting the future. So I believe Joel was written in the 9th century, and therefore I think that's why we can affirm that, yes, that was the original statement. But even if we didn't believe that, even if we thought that Joel and Isaiah were contemporaries, I think we could say, hey, what was more likely the original that you beat your, your uh, implementary, your farm implements into wo- weapons or weapons into farm implements? I think the former would be because that was their need. They had to protect themselves. So for both of those reasons, I think Joel 3.10 would be original. But yeah, ninth century. And again, I gave a whole introductory message about the dating of Joel. And you can pull that up online at ggf.org. Yeah, Bob. Um, in uh, regard to the uh, John Lennon and Marxism, and, yeah. which is now one of the most popular growing philosophies in America. Right. I think we've talked about this, but people need to know why these utopian schemes always end up in so many millions of people dying. Yes. And just a hellish situation. And because it's a denial of the sin nature, okay, and when you depart from a biblical worldview and you don't believe in the fall, and you don't believe that humans are, are sinners alienated from God, prone to doing evil, then you don't believe that it's anybody's role to restrain evil, and you also begin to believe that the people who are restraining evil are actually restraining the evolution of utopia. Yes. Okay, so in other words, if we'd let things go their natural course and just follow nature, we'll evolve into a higher order or a better state or whatever. Right. Right? When all the evidence says that's not what happens. Right. Okay? So the reason we are warning about that, because it's pertinent to everybody right now, because that's what is being pushed. Yep. All right? And Christians need to understand a biblical worldview. Yeah. And a biblical worldview includes... The fall, that humans have fallen into sin and are born with a sin nature. And that it takes restraint. Yes. And we also need forgiveness of sins. Amen. And God has provided a Savior. But here's another issue that's going on. And Eric, you've been pointing this out. Thank you. God established civil government to restrain evil so that humans can live on the earth. Yes. And function. Why? Why not just go wipe it all out? Well, at the time of the flood, when God did wipe it out, he promised not to do that again with the flood. And also, there's reiteration about the sin nature. Babel, we talked about that. Trying to have one, he stopped it, established the table of nations. The divine council stays in the unseen realm. We have civil government restraining evil. Why? So, because this is reiterated in the Noetic account, that we're supposed to thrive and flourish and replenish the earth. Yeah, amen. Now, why? Why does God want lots of humans on the earth? In all different kind of nations with boundaries. Because from them will be those who will populate the kingdom of God. Amen. God is most glorified when people are saved from various nations and whatever, save sinners. So it's not a problem to God that the earth is being filled with people. Right. But it's a problem to the John Lennons of the world. Yeah, that's right. Because then you can't have your utopia. And so these utopian governmental schemes lead to millions of people dying and always have and always will. Yeah, amen. And the ultimate one, is going to be the one during Daniel's 70th week, Antichrist version. That's right. So as Christians, we must resist that scheme. Yeah. Because the longer we're in the church age, as long as we're in the church age, we know that God's 
revealed will is to flourish and fill the earth and that civil governments will restrain evil so that can happen. And in America, we have the right to vote. So I go and I vote for whoever I think will restrain evil and make life possible. That's right. Now, it's been many, many years since anybody I voted for won. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But at least we can have a biblical worldview. That's right. And it's painful to watch the young people rushing to this Marxist socialist worldview thinking they're going to have utopia, and we see it, and we know you're heading for hell. Yeah, This isn't going to be heaven on earth. It's going to be hell on earth, and it always has been, and always will be. Get a clue. They have no clue. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So we need to teach. And so, Eric, I, I appreciate you have been oh, warning thanks, us. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for pointing this out. And, um, you know, it's funny. How many in here have seen some of the debates that were the presidential debates? And as Bob and I bring these things up, a lot of people say, well, this is political. It actually is religious. This is a religious battle. This is what this is. And um, how many in here saw any of the presidential debates? How many? And, you know, I wasn't, yeah, I was underwhelmed by the debates. But anybody remember a question about the military or the use of the military? So we're voting for the commander-in-chief, who's supposedly the leader of the armed forces of the United States, the most powerful armed forces on the planet, where with the touch of the button, we can light up and destroy basically all of humanity with our nuclear stockpile. There was not one question from any of the moderators about the military. Why? Because it doesn't interest them. They're as interested in government restraining evil as I am in ancient Aztec pottery. It doesn't interest them. Why? Because they have a Marxist worldview. Just exactly what Bob said. The role of government. So let's get to, to just real quickly a worldview issue that Bob was just mentioning. I think it's very astute. Karl Marx, he was a disciple of Hegel. Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Hegel believes that time is not linear where you begin with the creation and a fall and you go to judgment, but rather... If you can think of it, it's cyclical so that we're evolving. So think of the biblical worldview as linear. You go from here to here. You go from creation to judgment. But in Hegel's view, it's cyclical where you have a battle between the haves and the have-nots. He wouldn't say it that way. Marx, his student, did. But you would have a battle between the thesis and the antithesis. And what happens over time is humanity is going to evolve. So do you see, that's why Bob is pointing out you and I are standing in the way of that evolution, the spiritual evolution of mankind. Why? Because we have a biblical worldview. So we're standing in the way of their progress. That's why they call themselves progressing. But what the Bible's teaching is they're not progressing towards heaven on earth. It's going to be to hell on earth. They're going to build Babylon. Christ is going to, it's going to be so bad. Why does Jesus say, When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith upon the planet? Is is that an indication things are going to get better? Why does Jesus say in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, that unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive? How do the post-millennials, those who believe that humans are going to bring the kingdom of God, how do they believe in that in light of that verse? So here's the point. You're either going to believe the Bible and become a follower of Jesus Christ, are you going to follow Karl Marx and Hegel? That's really what we're down to today. It's those two big choices. Yes, Brian. That thesis, antithesis, yeah. isn't part of that whole deal. They, they come up with a, there's a crisis. This has been going. They even Absolutely. Put, yeah, it, it's been forever. All different nations, they, they, they throw a crisis out there, and then they solve the crisis by taking away some of your rights, and that just moves them up to the next crisis. And every time there's a crisis, yes. more and more of your rights are taken away until they evolve into. Right. When Rahm Emanuel said, never let a good crisis go to waste, he's citing Saul Linsky. Saul Linsky is a communist. He's a, he's a Marxist through and through. In fact, I did a lecture back in 2014 at the old Fick Auditorium, and I showed Barack Obama teaching in Saul Linsky's classroom. Now, why is that important? Because it's a Marxist-communist classroom. I, that's why I was so stunned. In 2008, for the first time, you had Americans voting for a communist. And I, I mean a, a card-carrying communist. David Axelrod, his advisor, the whole family were communists. You know how I know that? Because David Horowitz was his neighbor. David Horowitz was a communist who came out of it. 
He said the whole Axelrod family, Frank Marshall Davis, communist, Bill Ayers, a communist terrorist who blew up things. That's where Obama started his, his whole uh, political uh, endeavors was from his, from his home, Bill Ayers' home. So yeah, this is a battle between Marxism. So in the idea of this thesis-antithesis synthesis, so what happens is if you think about Hegel, he has it spiritualized. For him, it's a spiritual evolution. But Karl Marx, he was influenced by a man named Feuerbach. Feuerbach was an atheist, and Karl Marx was absolutely convinced Feuerbach was right, that there was no God. So what happens is what Karl Marx does is he materializes the dialectic, the, the thesis. It's not spiritual, it's material. So what he does, he says the battle is between the haves and the have-nots. So you're going to have, he called the haves the bourgeoisie, and the have-nots were the proletariat. And as they battle, what's going to happen is it's going to create a synthesis. That's where you have the crisis, the battle. But what happens, he says, is if the bourgeoisie and the proletariat are left to their own devices, the bourgeoisie will crush the proletariat. So the role of the government is to help the have-nots against the haves. So why do you have to pay more taxes than the guy who makes less? Because the role of government is to help the have-not. Now, what happened in the 1920s in America is you had the bourgeoisie, which is primarily the, the owner of business, and the, the proletariat, the worker, they got along too well. They weren't fighting, they weren't battling. Well, what you had is this socialist, primarily a man named Antonio Gramsci, he had argued that we have to divide these people, and the way we're going to do it is to find haves and have-nots differently than just economic haves and have-nots. We're going to break them down according to race, class, gender. That's the holy trinity of the left. If you can't find the haves and have-nots, force it by using race, class, gender. So you're going to have the haves in the race and the have-nots. We're going to do it with class. We're going to do it with gender. That's what they were going to do. And so that's why we've seen such a battle regarding race, etc., in America. It's part of the new religion, the Hegelian Marxist religion. So the reason Bob and I keep pointing these things out, this is a religious issue. It's not that you, we are getting political. It's that the political realm has become religious. That's really the issue. And so let's say you had a bunch of Jehovah Witnesses that came to power and they started denying the divinity of Christ. Wouldn't it be incumbent upon us to point that out? So when a Marxist comes and he supplants the biblical worldview, I'm going to point it out. I'm not going to be so polite that I'm going to say, oh, well, okay, you can just teach your heresy and I'm not going to ever object to it. No, it is heresy. So again, the, the crossroads for America is, are you going to follow Christ are you going to follow Karl Marx? That's the really issue. And thanks, Bob, for all the writings you've done on this issue. And um, by the way, Bob's book about the emerging church, you can get it on our website still, Kim. It's on Amazon. Oh, it's on Amazon. It's the seminal book, in my opinion, in the last two decades about this whole issue because he lays out um, the emerging church, which is really the forerunner of this whole movement. So, okay, I'm sorry. I'll, I'm getting this way off track here. I'll keep moving. I want to show you a... Jo- no, no. <laughs> no, it's very good. Thanks, Bob. But anybody else want to comment or question before I move on? I don't want to cut anybody off. Yes, Ed. Um, I'm just trying to get it. Oh, so I'm sorry, Ed. We're going to get you a microphone. Just chronologically, is uh, Gramsci... After Marx, but for, before Alinsky? He is, absolutely. Okay, um, I've got him in the Early place. 20th century. Gotcha. Yep, yep absolutely. And there, there's others as well that are involved, the Fabian Socialists. and um, Yeah, but very good question. By the way, um, real quick, you just brought, brought up to my mind. I was reading, I'm a glutton for punishment, I was reading one of the critical race theory books to find out what the left believes. There are two sources that they cite approvingly is Antonio Gramsci, a communist, and another man named Jacques Derrida. Now, if you're going to have two sources, this is what backs up critical race theory. Antonio Gramsci, the communist who wanted to break us into haves and have-nots, and a man named Jacques Derrida. Let me explain who Jacques Derrida is. Jacques Derrida is a Frenchman, as you probably could tell, and he believes that the reader defines the meaning of a text. What we believe as Christians in foundational epistemology is that the author grounds the meaning of a text. 
So the author grounds the meaning. So let me give you this simple example. I know I've given this before, but if my wife wrote me a letter or um, just a simple grocery list, she said, Eric, go get milk, eggs, and bread. And I take her writing, and I go to the store, and all of a sudden I become postmodern. And I say, hey, the reader defines the meaning, not the author, not my wife. And I come back with potato chips, a six-pack of Mountain Dew, and Babe Ruth bar. And I come to her, and I say, well, that's the way I interpreted it. Well, how do you think that would go for me? She's the author. She said, that's not at all what I said. She as the author grounded the meaning of the text. Well, it's as offensive it is to my wife if I did that with the grocery list, how much more offensive is it to say in God's word when it clearly says what it says? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And someone says, well, I can't mean that. After all, I'm the reader that defines the meaning of the text. That's exactly what Jacques Derrida taught. The reader defines the meaning of the text. So the root of racial, uh, this new theory that they have, critical race theory, is Marxism in postmodernity. You can't know the truth. You can't know anything from the written language. And you have to divide people perpetually according to race, class, gender. Why? Because we have to have our haves and have-nots for Karl Marx's dream of building utopia upon the planet. That's all it is. And these kids talk about critical race theory, critical race. It's being taught to them in the schools. And all it is is religion. So I'm sorry to get off on that, but you just reminded me of that, Ed, so thank you. Okay, so let's continue on here in the text. Joel 3, 11 through 12. Here's the good news. Christ is going to bring his holy ones. It says, Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, I want you to notice this phrase, surrounding nations. You see that again down here in verse 12. It happens twice in these two verses. Now, the surrounding nations, of course, are those that are surrounding Israel. They are going to attack and try to wipe God's people out. What's very interesting, just jot this verse down, Zechariah 14.2 records it's not just the surrounding nations, but it's all the nations. Now, why do I say that? Well, all the nations, I think, means probably just that. It's all the world turns against Israel. And you can see a movement in America where there's people in America that would like to attack the people of Israel. The, the hatred of Israel has infected the entire world. How many here have heard of the boycott, divest, and sanction movement against Israel? Well, that is part of this movement that will one day lead to all the nations surrounding Jerusalem. It's this anti-Semitic view that the world has. Think about it this way. What other nation on the planet does not get to choose where it places its capital? That's the, the only nation that has had trouble de- de- saying, hey, Jerusalem is our capital, that's Israel. Now, why? Because there's hatred towards Israel. Why would it be controversial that that's, in fact, their capital? It shouldn't be. Now, let me just read to you a little thing from Time Magazine, and I want to read it just because it's in the culture, and it's just common vernacular that people hear. Listen to the common logic, and I'm going to show three problems with it. This is an article about the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement about Israel. It says this, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement relies on putting political and economic pressure on Israel. The goal is to push Israel to recognize the rights of Palestinian citizens currently living in Israel. Stop there. The average American reads this Time magazine article, and they say, oh, these mean Israelites. They're not recognizing the rights of the Palestinians. But wait a minute. Let's back up for just a moment. First of all, is there such thing as a Palestinian? No. Was there ever a nation called Palestine? No. In fact, the term came from 135 AD from a Roman emperor named Hadrian, who after the Bar Kokhba revolt so hated the Jews, he renamed the nation of Israel literally Syrophilistia. Philistia is the term for the Philistines where we get our term for Palestine. Why would he do that? Because the Philistines were the mortal enemies of the Jews. So think of uh, David and Goliath. David is fighting Goliath, who's what? He's a Philistine. 
He's a Palestinian. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to claim that there's a genetic link. I'm just saying if you're to transliterate it into the English, he was a Palestinian. That's how that term has come down into our day. So do you see the term Palestinian itself is an anti-Semitic remark? Now, if you continue to reading this, listen to what it says. It says, these mean Israelis are not allowing the Palestinian refugees to turn back to their country that they were driven out of 1948 when Israel was created. Stop there. Israel was not created in 1948. Let's go back to 1000 B.C. 1000 B.C. Who was on the throne in Jerusalem? King David. There was a united monarchy, and Israel was the inhabitants of the land. Now, is 1000 B.C. prior to 1948? Yes. <laughs> so, I just tell people, let's go back to 1000 B.C. Perhaps that's early enough to settle the right of who really owned the land. Uh, the other thing I'd like to point out is who gave the land and to whom was it given? Well, God gave the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, you have to believe that from the scriptures, don't you? But again, we have a choice. Are we going to believe what the culture says or are we going to believe what the scriptures say? And that's really the choice for all people. It's not just for us. In this room, it's for all people. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 15, 7. Let's remind ourselves that God did indeed give this land to the people of Israel. And for that reason, the nations want to wipe them out. It's ultimately this hatred of Israel is a hatred of God. Genesis 15, 7. Now recall, this is one verse after Abraham believed God. He believed the promise given to him. It was credited him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 7, it says, And he said to him, this is to Abraham, I am the Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh, his covenant name. I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Aha! So Abraham was given the land. That would have been around 1850 B.C. That's a long time ago, right? Now, continue to Genesis 15, 18. Genesis 15, 18, remember what had happened in the intervening verses. God cuts the covenant. Abraham actually cuts the animals. Then he's put asleep. God alone walks the blood path, showing that he is giving this, this covenant unconditionally. And then in Genesis 15, 18, God gives this promise. It says that on that day, Yahweh made a covenant, literally cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your seed, stop there, remember the term Zerah, Genesis 3.15, first promise, the seed of the woman's going to crush the serpent. Remember that from last week? Now here you have to your seed, literally, it's descendants in English, but to your seed, Zerah, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Let's focus in on just a moment on that term seed. To Abraham's seed was given the land. Now, remember, I said that the seed, the term Zerah in Hebrew, is a collective noun. It can mean one or it can mean many. So deer is the same way. I can shoot one deer or I can shoot ten deer, but I use the term deer. The term in Hebrew for descendants there, Zerah, is the same thing. So what that means is the land, yes, belongs to the many, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all their descendants, but it also belongs to the one from whom or to, uh, to, would be the Messiah who comes from Israel, who comes from the many descendants. It does belong ultimately to the one. Now, the proof of that is Paul himself says in Galatians 3.16 regarding the seed promise that ultimately it was given to one seed, not the many. It was given to Christ. Now, the reason I'm, read, I'm not reading into it, Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3.16. In Genesis 15.18, the promise is certainly given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's also given to the Messiah. This is the Messiah's land. Now, one of the proofs of that is notice in Genesis 15, 18, what are the dimensions of the land? Well, it's from the river Egypt, that's the Nile, all the way to the river Euphrates. My goodness, that's in Mesopotamia. Well, has Israel ever had that large of a border? No. It came close under Solomon but it's never had that large of a border. So when will that be fulfilled? When the Messiah reigns. Who ultimately owns the land? The Messiah. 
and his people. And by faith in Jesus Christ, you are grafted in to those promises too. It's part of your kingdom too. So my point is, why do they say then so callously that Israel just got the land in 1948? Do you see how shallow that is? See, at the end of the day, what the Bible really helps us do, it connects us to reality. It connects us to the way the world really is. The way the world really is, is such that God has given that land to Israel. And in fact, the Israelites have dwelt there for centuries. The world is not as Time Magazine would have you believe. And so it's incumbent upon us to know the truth. Now, I want you to see here this great promise. I love it. What's going to be the answer to these surrounding nations that are going to surround Jerusalem? Notice in blue, the the great cry is, bring down Yahweh, your mighty ones. The term for mighty ones there in blue is the Gabor. Gabor means a mighty one or something that's great. Do you remember in Genesis 9-6, the son that will be given to us is also called mighty God? That's El Gabor. El for God and Gabor for mighty. So the mighty ones are going to come down. Now, who are these mighty ones? Well, there's a choice. It could either be dead believers that are now resurrected because Christ does bring those with him at his second coming, or far more likely here in this text, it's a reference to the angels. And certainly that's what we have a reference to. This is a reference to the divine counsel. The divine counsel that God uses, his angels are referred to here as mighty ones. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 33, verses 1 through 4. Please turn your Bibles there. And I want you to see that at the giving of the law, the law that was given at Mount Sinai was depicted as given by God as he came with angels. Angels were with him at Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 33, 1 through 4. Now, one of the reasons this is an important passage is it ties us into this idea of the mighty ones that come with Yahweh, but it also explains why the writers of the New Testament believed that the law was given with the agency of angels. And this is the one text, I think, in the Old Testament that really succinctly states it so that we know the Apostle Paul and others weren't blowing bubbles. No, they were taking it from what was revealed. Deuteronomy 33, 1 through 4, this is the blessing Moses gave before he dies to Israel, much like Jacob did to the 12 tribes in Genesis 49. Deuteronomy 33, 1 through 4, it says, Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, Yahweh came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. Now stop there. Sinai is Mount Horeb. By the way, this is the only time in all of the book of Deuteronomy that Mount Horeb is called Mount Sinai, where God gave the Ten Commandments, where he met with Moses face to face. He met the people at the mountain. Now, where's Mount Seir? S-E-I-R in our English versions. Well, that's the headquarters, the mountain range of the people of Edom. The Edomites. Remember Esau? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's their capital, Seir or their, their mountain range. Now, what about Mount Paran? Well, that would have been in the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And so the idea is that as Israel was in different battles, in different movements throughout their history, God was the one who dawned in power to protect them, to drive out their enemies, to sustain them. And he's demonstrating this. He says, remember these things. This is the God who did these things. He's shown himself. But notice it goes on to say, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was the flashing lightning for them. Notice verse 3, it says, indeed he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand, and they followed in your steps. Everyone receives of your words. Moses charged us with a law a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Notice two times you have a reference to the holy ones. The holy ones came with Yahweh at Mount Sinai as he gave his law. These are the same holy ones or now mighty ones that are being described that will come with him at this final battle as Christ will throw down all of his enemies. It will be one that's accompanied by the angelic realm. Now I want you to see some of the New Testament passages that suggest this. Let's turn to uh, Galatians 3.19 first. Turn to Galatians 3.19. 
Galatians 3.19. If you turn your Bibles there, you'll see a reference that Paul makes to the law being brought about through the agency of angels. And this is where he's getting it. He's getting it from that Deuteronomy 33 text. Notice Galatians 3.19. Paul says, why the law then? Why was it added, he's asking. It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, the mediator would be Moses, until the seed, that's Christ, would come to whom the promise had been made. Okay, so notice, here Paul is giving us divine commentary. He's inspired by the Spirit. And he's telling us, yes, the law, in fact, was given through the agency of angels. In other words, they were there when God gave it. Where is he getting that from? Deuteronomy 33. Okay, so as God met with his people, with the holy ones, the mighty ones, he's coming to judge his enemies and save his people with the mighty ones with him again. In fact, let me put up Matthew 25, 31. Matthew 25, 31. Remember, this is the summary at the very end of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, notice that reference, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Okay, now, why am I laboring this point? Because I want you to make connections when you're reading the Bible. I want you to make the connection between what Joel promised in the ninth century and what Jesus is promising some 900 years later, 850 years later, right in there. Okay, they're saying the same thing. Why? Because they're talking about the same event, the final battle that happens at the end of Daniel's 70th week. Okay. Now, some other passages, we won't turn to them, but Hebrews 2.2, 2, Acts 7.53, these passages all talk about the law coming through the agency of angels as well. Now, one thing I want to point out, because notice he's going to bring all of the nations, God is, that are surrounding Jerusalem and Israel, he's going to bring them to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. I talked about that in a previous message. That's the Kidron Valley. That's the best reading of that. So the nations are going to surround Jerusalem. They're going to try to wipe her out. And it's at that time Christ returns and he comes with his mighty ones. And he's going to thwart the desires of the nations to wipe out Israel. He's going to throw them down. Now, do you remember Jehoshaphat? Two parts to that. Yahweh, Shophet. Yahweh is the true God. Shophet is judge. It means Yahweh is judge. Now, I love pointing this out. Remember, what's Jesus' name? Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Think about all the nations rejected Yahweh as salvation. So at the end, of the, the end of time, they get Yahweh as judge. You either have Yahweh as salvation or you get Yahweh as judge and you're his enemy. So that's why it's called also the Valley of Decision. Okay, now let's keep moving. I want to show you here 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. This Christ coming with angels is a big issue in the New Testament. Notice what Paul promised. He says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What is Paul understanding? He's understanding the parousia of Christ to be an event in which he will be revealed and he will come with mighty angels and flaming fire. Now remember, the parousia of Christ is a complex event. That's the technical term for the coming of Christ. The term in Greek, parousia, but it's not a single day. It's not a 24-hour day. It's a complex event that lasts seven years. So notice Paul can refer to that by referring to any part of the seven years. He just happens to be referring to the end part of it, where the Lord will come with his mighty angels, and he's going to deal retribution on his enemies. Well, that's exactly what we're reading in Joel. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 25. You see, the scriptures are all saying the same thing, aren't they? They're not speaking with a forked tongue. There's no contradictions. The other thing I want to point out is notice here, the promise is that God is going to repay affliction to those who afflicted us. See the term affliction? That's thalipsis. That's our term for tribulation. 
Now, why is that important? In Acts 14.22, many people get this wrong. That's where Paul says, through many tribulations, we must inherit the kingdom of God. Right? So people will, they'll come to me and they'll say, Eric, why do you think that we're going to be raptured prior to the tribulation? Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The tribulations Paul's referring to in Acts 14.22 are things that occur to us here and now. But notice there's going to be reversal in the 70th week where God afflicts those who afflicted us. That's the reversal that happens. So you and I will be exempt from that affliction. So we're not going to incur all tribulation, just the tribulations of the church age or the time of the Gentiles. The 70th week comes, it'll all be reversed. The other thing I want to point out in this text is very important. Those who are enemies of God are going to face what kind of destruction? It's eternal destruction. If you talk to Seventh-day Adventists, they don't believe that. They believe in soul sleep. There's people who believe in ultimate reconciliation. Um, I know there was some problems even with C.S. Lewis. He didn't want to believe that hell was eternal. But here, the term ionios means just that, without end. It's everlasting. The term here, destruction, doesn't mean annihilation. Some people from this passage are annihilationists, but let me explain that the Bible does not teach annihilationism. Destruction here, think about a car wreck. When your car goes through an intersection and some guy T-bones it and it's destroyed, does that mean your vehicle ceases to exist? No. It's been so altered that it does not function properly. In the same way, the destruction that humanity is facing facing in the lake of fire is not one in which they're going to be annihilated, but one in which they're going to suffer wrath forever at the hands of God. So there's no way to get out of that eternal destruction except through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, Yeshua. You trust Jesus, you get Yahweh as your Savior. You reject him, you get Yahweh as your judge, right? So again, this idea that Christ comes with his angels is something that Joel was teaching us years ago. I want you to see this in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is teaching the same thing, written 300 years later. Listen to what it says. Zechariah 14, 1 through 3. Behold, a day is coming for Yahweh when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I, this is the Lord, will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then notice verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations is when he fights on a day of battle. That's exactly what's being taught in Joel 3. That's exactly what Paul taught in 2 Thessalonians 1. That's exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew 24, 25. By the way, turn your Bible to Zechariah 14, 5. I couldn't fit it on the screen, but I want you to make this connection, and we'll, we'll stop here. Zechariah 14, 5. Zechariah 14, 5. I hope you've turned your Bible there. What's the promise when Christ returns? Talking to Israel, he says, You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. There you go. Zechariah is teaching the same thing that Joel 3 is. But Joel taught it some 300 years prior. So again, the Old Testament is teaching with one voice, and so does the New Testament. The Lord Jesus coming at this final battle with his mighty angels to protect his people, to save us, and to rid the world of his enemies. That's what he's going to do. Now, I have a little homework assignment before we close. I will come to this next, uh, pa- the next slide next time. But let me put up our homework. Here's something I want everyone to do if you, if you have opportunity to do it. First thing I want you to do is look up all the references to the sun, moon, and stars and how they're affected in the book of Revelation. Because next week we're going to talk in Joel 3 about the sun, moon, and stars being affected. And what you'll find, I want, well, here's what I want you to find. I want you to count how many times the sun, moon, or stars are affected in the book of Revelation. And I'll see what kind of numbers you come up with. Okay? Second homework piece here. Look up Matthew 24, 29 through 31 and answer when this occurs in Daniel's 70th week. In other words, Jesus in those verses mentions the sun, moon, and stars being darkened. 
And my question to you is when do you think that occurs? If you're going to place it in the book of Revelation or the last seven years, when do you think that occurs? There's actually a clue in Matthew 24, 29 that will tip you off. There's a clue that's very poignant. Jesus uses a timing clue in Matthew 24, 29. You'll find that, and that'll help us understand the totality of what's being said. Then we want to explain biblically when Joel's battle occurs in Daniel's 70th week. What I want you to see is that Joel 3 and Jesus are saying the same thing. Are you with me? And the reason that's exciting is what you're doing then is you're putting your Bible together. Now, all of a sudden, the second coming, the rapture, all these things occurring in the 70th week, it's not just foretold in the Olivet Discourse. It's in Joel 3. It's in Zechariah 14. You're starting to see, hey, the scriptures are all saying the same thing. That's what will be exciting. So I'll have you do that homework, and we'll look through that first thing, and then we'll continue on in our study of Joel. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity to look into your word in freedom and peace. We do pray for our governing officials, Lord. We pray that you would give them wisdom. We pray that they would restrain evil, that we as brothers and sisters in Christ here at Gospel of Grace and around the world would be able to be about your gospel and to live peaceful lives. Um, I pray for Bob as he gives us the word, this very important message about what true spiritual warfare is. I pray, Lord, that you'd bless him. Give us ears to hear so that we would understand the things of Scripture. Help us also to be doers of the word, not just hearers, all for the sake of your name. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.